Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Jamie Sandberg. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Hello, listeners. I'm happy to be here, and happy belated Mother's Day. Whee! Yay! Moms! <laughs> yay, daughters! Uh, yeah, so happy yay, Mother's sons. Day. Yay, yay, children. <laughs> yay, parent relationships. Hopefully, yours is a functional one, but if it's not, um, I wish you a functional child-parent relationship in the future somehow, I guess. There you go. I, 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 this is... Oh, that's awful heavy for the first 30 seconds of the podcast. <laughs> and I'm sitting here thinking I, I left out the non-binary folk. So. Yeah. Um, we Children, parents. Child-parent yeah. relationships. We, we try to be accepting, understanding, and, and woke to a wide breadth of peoples here at, uh, at Campfire Classics. But, you know, sometimes we mess it up. <laughs> it's, it's in the nature of doing this. Please... Don't cancel us because today we just hit 10,000 downloads. Um, so thank you listeners for that. That's uh, very exciting as we're as we're recording this today. Obviously, we're coming to you from the past as you're listening. But um, yeah, 10,000, 10,000 downloads. Congratulations and congratulations, Heather, who's not here. Who's not here. Um, yeah, she'll she'll be back with us soon, though. Uh, this is episode 98. Uh, uh, next week will be episode 99 and then Heather will be joining us for the 100th episode because that will be when she's back on solid land off the boat. Yeah. So tune back in for that. Yeah. We'll also tune back in for next week because that'll be a good one. 99. That'll be fun. Uh, I think Craig's going to be back for that. I think that's tentatively the plan. Uh, but for today, I've got my mom here with me. She's been a longtime character on the podcast, but is only finding us, fi- finding us, is only finally joining us in person. Um, figured I'm here living with her. It's a Mother's Day weekend. Let's record with mom. And I'm, I'm not just a frequent listener and a guest. I'm also a patron. This is true. Yeah. Um, Mom's been giving us that sweet, sweet Patreon money. And you, too, could give us some Patreon money. Uh, Just go to Patreon and look for um, 5050 Arts Production, which is our parent production company. And uh, give us money. And we'll give you extra free entertainment and lots of thank yous. Indeed. That's the way that works. I'm going to put my wine glass down. I'm going to pick mine up. (laughs) Uh, So this is... um, for new listeners, and if we're doing our job right, every episode is somebody's first episode. Um, this is a uh, literary comedy podcast. Um, both literary and comedy are kind of in quotation marks because I think most academics would claim this podcast has very little literary value, and most comedians would claim it has very little comedic value. Oh, I disagree. There's a lot of literature, and there I I laugh often and out loud. This is good to know. As a listener. (laughs) Um, But uh, what what we do is typically we, we, I mean, always we read short stories that we have found in the public domain. And uh, this week, my mom has a story for me to read, which is going to make a really nice change because for years 
she read me stories. Um, which which means actually a lot of this podcast is kind of your fault. Oh, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, I first started reading to you um, when you were still an infant, but I, I, our first foray into chapter books was the Narnia Chronicles. I read them aloud, and at the ripe old age of four, you acted out all the parts. Wow. So that was very much a precursor to everything I would go on to do. Indeed, indeed. Um, I'll see if I can find a picture of four-year-old me that I can put up on Instagram or something. And and dear listener, you can imagine that kid going around swinging swords at imaginary dragons. But if there are listeners out there that have never experienced the Narnia Chronicles, uh, it's... Oh, it's very much well, well worth it. Um, I would love to put out an audiobook version of it for you to listen to, but um, that would be copyright violation. Yeah. So you'll actually just have to go out and read the book for yourself. Sorry about that. However, we are planning on doing here at Campfire Classics a little bit of a book club sometime in the next couple of months. Uh, something we're talking about doing because mostly I think it will be fun. Um, I got a tentative go ahead from Heather <laughs> when I suggested this. Her response was, yeah, but then I'd have to read the book. Oh, no. <laughs> or find an audio version that already exists. Well, and well, what I said was no, because I will record an audiobook version and you can just listen to me read the book to you. There you go. It's good to um, have a plan. It's good to have a plan. So, uh, listeners, if you are interested in participating in that, uh, we don't have a date yet and we don't have a book yet. So if you have books, books in the public domain so that we do not get sued because getting sued is a really bad way to make money. Um, uh, but if you have books that you think would be fun to to read for this uh, this classic book club, um, let us know. You can shoot us an email at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com and uh, just say, hey, I think Frankenstein would be awesome or I think Jane Eyre would be awesome or I think the Brothers Karamazov would be awesome. You're oh, wrong. Don't pick that. But, don't pick um, that. Don't pick but you can, you can say it. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and let us know. Tell us what you think. And, um, and then I'll put up the chapters in audiobook format and, and somewhere down the line we'll discuss the book and uh, we'll let you know when that's coming up so that you can send us any questions or thoughts you have, things you'd want to hear us discuss. I'll be tuned in. Excellent. Uh, so as I said, this is a podcast where we ordinarily just read short stories that we find out of the public domain. Uh, mom has picked a story for me this week. And before we dive into that, she's going to give us a little bit of, um, background information. Uh, we call this our fun facts section and it's usually about the author, although occasionally about something else, but, um, that's what we're heading into. I am just a little concerned because you haven't given your usual um, accidental penis joke warning. Is that because I'm here? Yes, that's because you're here. I assume I'm going to be much more on my 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 best behavior. No, I, it's because my my intro to the um to what the show is about got interrupted by by me talking about book club and I forgot ah. what my normal spiel is. Uh, so. Where did I drop off? Uh, yes, so we we read uh, stories from the public domain, and um, along the way, we play Mystery Science 3000, is basically what it comes down to. Um, we make fun of antiquated language, we look up strange words, and there are frequently things that 
as Craig pointed out, maybe they were sex jokes back then. Maybe not, but they certainly are now. Uh, and when there's when when there's a good sex joke in a you know 150 year old story, it's just hard to ignore it. And as a retired high school teacher, I guarantee you. Uh, there are things you read on this podcast that if I had read them to a classroom, there would have been <laughs> laughter throughout. No way would we get a, away with characters ejaculating. Yeah. It's been a while since this podcast had a good ejaculation. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, uh, obviously we can never plan for it cause we don't read these stories ahead of time, but I'm hoping we get at least one of those this week cause it's been I, months, I think. I don't, I honestly, I don't even remember when the last one was, um, really a disappointing state of affairs. Well, shall we? And on that merry little note. Get started. This week, Ken, you will be reading a short story from author Mary Elizabeth Braddon, who was a favorite in Victorian England. I think she's new for this podcast. I don't think we've read anything by her. Well, that was the plan. All right. (laughs) Her short stories were popular across many genres, but she's best known for her novel, Lady Audley's Secret. This novel helped define the sensation fiction genre, and its plot centered around accidental bigamy. Uh, Come again? Apparently bigamy can be an accident. I'm not sure how that happens. I Also... Come again? <laughs> oh, probably, oh, probably. Oh, come again, sorry. <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't realize until after I had said it. That was not intentional. See, that's the kind of accidental sex joke we'll be riffing on all night long. There you go. Stay tuned. Coming again in front of your mother. <clears throat> oh, God, this is going to be an uncomfortable one. <laughs> anyway, modern day literary critic Elaine Showalter summarized the book Lady Audley's Secret by saying Braddon's bigamous heroine deserts her child, pushes husband number one down a well, thinks about poisoning husband number two, and sets fire to a hotel in which her other male acquaintances are residing. (laughs) So I love this lady. Yeah. Sensational fiction at its best. Oh, and and so, I, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but Victorian author, I'm a little surprised that it is the the female character who is guilty of accidental bigamy. Indeed. It makes you wonder what <laughs> her inspiration is. Yeah. Braddon was born in London okay. in 1835, uh, which I am... Retired history teacher here. That was the same year a bunch of Americans decided Texas shouldn't be a part of Mexico anymore and declared independence. All right. Good good to put things in historical context. There you go. Braddon's birth seems to be the last normal thing about her life. Uh, by the age of five, her mother left her father and took young Mary and her older brother Edward with her. Okay. When she was 10, Edward, then 16, moved to India, then to Australia, where he eventually became the premier of Tasmania, (laughs) a position somewhere between governor and president. Right, because Tasmania is like a a county or or 
province or something of Australia? Yes. And this is when we have uh, England um, ruling from sea to shine, not sea, uh, sun never sets. Sun never on. sets on the yeah. English Empire. Right, right, there right. you go. Wow. So her brother is like president of the Tasmanian devil. Oh. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, we have Mary and her mother having trouble making ends meet. Apparently, 16 year old Edward wasn't sending them money. So Mary and, decided, and a, and a single woman who left her husband couldn't pay the bills. Yeah, go I'm figure. I'm sure everyone is shocked and horrified. Yes. So Mary decides to uh, help mom out by starting her acting career, <laughs> and this is at a time where young women uh, on the stage uh, were not exactly seen as um, respectable. <laughs> In fact, it was quite scandalous, but needs must. After a few years, Mary gave up the stage to pursue her writing. Great. Yeah, but that makes mom real proud. Hey, can you help pay the bills? Sure, I'm going to go be an actor. That'll make us rich, right? No? How about writing? Well, stay tuned. <laughs> uh, around 1860, two things happened. Um, in her private life, she met a man. Okay. His name, John Maxwell, and he was a publisher. She moved in with him less than a year later, but there's a little bit of a hitch. He was already married and had five children. So he's real married. (laughs) He's very married. But his wife was in an insane asylum. His wife was in insane asylum, so very weathering heights. Oh, yeah. Is that the, is that the one where he, he's, like, keeping her locked up in the attic or something like that? Yeah, and very much a secret, and he hires somebody to come be the nanny for his children, and then they accidentally fall in love. I hate when that happens. Yeah. Mary, having moved in, actually does become the nanny stepmother for the kids and obviously John's lover until his wife dies when they can get married. But she doesn't cooperate with that and she doesn't die until 1874. So they're just living in sin for 13 years. Sure. Lucky 13. (laughs) I guess in this case it was. Yeah, there you go. They didn't wait to get married, though, to start having kids. In fact, their first child was born in 1863. Mary goes on to have a total of six children. So they're raising 11 kids together? Indeed. All right. I'm sure that left her with plenty of time to do her writing. (laughs) Um, Lots of material to write about. Yes. And I said earlier on that two things happened because during this time, of course, she also publishes. Um, but uh, a little bit more about John. He goes and becomes basically a property developer in the part of Richmond where they are living. And as a result, many of the streets surrounding what was in their home are named after characters in Braddon's book. <laughs> books, plural. Cool. So speaking of her books, around 1860, uh about the time she meets John and moves in with him. About the time she meets John, the publisher. Yeah, yeah. Her books actually start selling. 
publishing is one thing, but actually getting people to buy your books is sure. a whole nother thing. It's it's kind of like doing a play. You need the audience to just, show up. Just because you're on stage doesn't mean people are watching. Indeed. Kind of like doing a podcast. Just because you're recording it doesn't mean people are listening. Hey, listeners, you're awesome. Thank you so much. Obviously, you're listening. You're just like the best people I know. But if you could do us a huge favor and recommend us to some of your friends, that'd be awesome. Thank you. Speaking of um, selling books. Yes. uh, Her books start to sell a lot. They, in fact, become very popular. In her lifetime, she writes over 80 novels. Good Lord. And they're moving off the shelves. Her sensation-filled bestseller, which made her a fortune, not a small one, a fortune, was, as I mentioned earlier, Lady Audley's Secret, and that's published in 1862. But she also wrote supernatural fiction, historical fiction, ghost stories, mysteries, you know, all the stuff that your podcast covers. Cool. Braden, so we can we can look forward to finding more of her, possibly, if indeed, this one goes well. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Braden, uh, because... Raising 11 children and writing 80 novels is not enough. Sure. Was also editor of the literary periodical Temple Bar and started her own magazine called Belgravia, which focused on publishing serialized sensation novels. So she had a thing. Yep. But also published poems, travel narratives, biographies, along with essays on fashion, history, and science. All right. Slacker. <laughs> Indeed. For, so what what have you been doing with your life so far, right? <laughs> what have we all been doing? Yeah. And this this all started in, started really taking off in 1860. She was born in 1830. So she's 25 years old. Indeed. <laughs> For Campfire Classics listeners who may not know, the Victorian sensation novel has been defined as a novel with a secret and as the sort of novel that combines romance and realism in a way that, quote, strains both modes to the limit. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) So I wonder if we'll have any romance and realism in this story. They also tend to pull heavily from gothic romance and melodrama. Often, sensation fiction writers had theatrical connections. So her years on the stage served her well. Sure. Mary Elizabeth Braden. Mary Mary Elizabeth Braden. Drink more wine, Jamie. Got there. (laughs) Died in 1915, just shy of her 80th birthday. So she wrote over 80 novels. She lived almost 80 years. She is considered to be one of the most important novelists in the Victorian era. Gosh, really drink more wine. It might. Sometimes it helps. It does. And and actually, I've been talking so much, I'm not drinking. She is considered to be one of the most important novelists of the Victorian era, often listed alongside authors like Charles Dickens, Wilkie Collins, and Arthur Conan Doyle. So she's in good company here, too. We've read all those guys. Indeed. So, retired teacher, we have to cite our sources. Sure. I turn first to Wikipedia, a fun fact source that has been... We we go there for 
almost everything. And followed their links for more information to uh, the Victorian Women Writers Project and the Gutenberg Project. Thank you, Wikipedia. Thank you, Gutenberg. And thank you, Victorian Women. Today, Ken. Yes. You will be reading one of Braddon's short ghost stories. Published in 1860, when she was just starting. This story is entitled The Cold Embrace. Ooh, I don't like the cold. Let's start this fire. Indeed. The Cold Embrace by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. He was an artist. Such things as happened to him happen sometimes to artists. He was a German. Ooh, accents. Oh, crap. <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't volunteer to read this week. Oh, no. <clears throat> Strap in, y'all. He was a German. Such things as happened to him happened sometimes to Germans. He was young, handsome, studious, enthusiastic, metaphysical, reckless, unbelieving, heartless. Oh, my. I know what the word metaphysical means. I have never heard metaphysical used to describe a person. Like, can does metaphysical work as a personality trait? I have never encountered it as a, a description of this kind either. Huh. I like it. I like it. it I, I'm trying to think of, like, I guess, yeah, c- cool. It can work. Want to look it up? Yeah, I do. See if it's got a meaning that makes sense. Referring to metaphysics. That's useful. Thank you, Google. Derived from the Greek meta, um, to physica, after the nature of things, referring to an idea, doctrine, or posited reality outside of human sense perception. All right. So he is young, handsome, studious, enthusiastic, outside of the realm of human perception, reckless, unbelieving, and heartless. So he's a ghost. Well, hey, there you go. That's why he, that's why she is using this because um, another word for metaphysical is sometimes paranormal or transcendental, otherworldly. All right, yeah. So, so if, if we go to a thesaurus and we look in the right part of the thesaurus, metaphysical, when used to describe a person, Otherworldly, transcendental, paranormal. Okay. Supernatural, ethereal, all of that good stuff. All right. So he's... He's into the uh, spiritual. Into the spiritual. Maybe looks a little bit like... Uh, what's his name? The 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 guy from uh, the vampire movies. Um, I'd help you if I could. I don't know where you're going. The one who just played Batman. I can't even think of the characters. Bella and, and, and Edward and... Um, Jesus, what's his name? The Twilight series. Yeah, the Twilight series. Um, but his name is gone. Robert Pattinson. I'm picturing Robert Pattinson. Ding, ding, ding. There ding. we go. I got there eventually. <clears throat> that was upsetting. And we're already on the fourth sentence. Yeah, which is also the fourth paragraph. So, you know, we've got that going for us. Being young, handsome, and eloquent, he was beloved. 
He was an orphan under the guardianship of his dead father's brother, his uncle Wilhelm, in whose house he had been brought up from a little child. And she who loved him was his cousin, his cousin Gertrude, whom he swore he loved in return. Gertrude and Wilhelm. Yes, although we don't know his name yet. Wilhelm is the uncle who raised him. And Gertrude is the cousin who came up like his sister, presumably. And he loves her. Which is cool, but I'm guessing it's not a sisterly love. Judging by, you know. Yeah. Stories. (laughs) Did he love her? Yes. When he first swore it. It soon wore out, this passionate love. How threadbare and wretched a sentiment it became at last in the selfish heart of the student. (laughs) Oh, man. But in its golden dawn, when he was only 19 and had just returned from his apprenticeship to a great painter at Antwerp, and they wandered together in the most romantic outskirts of the city at rosy sunset by holy moonlight or bright and joyous morning, how beautiful a dream. Mm. Yeah, it's always love when you're 19. They keep it a secret from Wilhelm, as he has the father's ambition of a wealthy suitor for his only child, a cold and dreary vision beside the lover's dream. So they are betrothed, and standing side by side, when the dying sun and the pale rising moon divide the heavens, he puts the betrothal ring upon her finger, the white and taper finger whose slender shape he knows so well. So this is a Victorian thing that you marry your cousin. Yeah. Which um, they didn't register as creepy then, but it makes it no less creepy now. I know. It just. And not for nothing, but this may be his cousin. However, he was raised as her brother. Yes. Yes. Mm. This is just not right. It's a little it's a little weird. And he's 19 and has no money. Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? He's 19. Like I said, it's always love. Um, So they were betrothed, blah, 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 on the finger, all shapely and pretty and white. Um, Ah, this ring is a peculiar one, a massive golden serpent, its tail in its mouth, the symbol of eternity. It had been his mother's, and he would know it amongst a thousand. If he were to become blind tomorrow, he could select it from amongst a thousand by the touch alone. Foreshadow. That's a strange superpower. Indeed. He places it on her finger, and they swear to be true to each other forever and ever, through trouble and danger, sorrow and change, in wealth or poverty. Her father must needs be one to consent to their union by and by, for they were now betrothed, and death alone could part them. Thinking more foreshadowing? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've read Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? But the young student, the scoffer at revelation, yet the enthusiastic adorer of the mythical, asks, in his American accent, because I don't want to play in German, Oh. <laughs> can death bit. part us? 
I would return to you from the grave, Gertrude. My soul would come back to be near my love. And you, you, if you died before me, the cold earth would not hold you from me. If you loved me, you would return. And again, these fair arms would be clasped around my neck as they are now. God, that's a zombie novel. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Have you read Pride and Prejudice and Zombies? I have not read it cover to cover, but I spent many a joyful hour with it. Shockingly good. Indeed. Shockingly good. There's a movie version of it, too, that is an absolute hoot. I have uh, seen trailers, but have not seen the film because I'm me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Anyway, listener, if you're a person who has trouble getting into sort of your your um, drier romance uh, and therefore have not had a chance to read Pride and Prejudice. I mean, it's a good book. You should. But Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, there's a lot more like brains and blood and insanity. Check it out. (laughs) And there's an an excuse for the dim-witted daughter. (laughs) Yeah. But she told him with a holier light in her deep blue eyes than had ever shown in his, she told him that the dead who die at peace with God are happy in heaven and cannot return to the troubled earth, and that it is only the suicide, the lost wretch on whom sorrowful angels shut the door of paradise, whose unholy spirit haunts the footsteps of the living. Oh, more foreshadow. The first year of their betrothal is past, and she is alone, for he has gone to Italy on a commission for some rich man to copy Raphael's Titian's Guidos in a gallery at Florence. He has gone to win fame, perhaps, but it is not the less bitter. He is gone. Of course, his father misses his young nephew, who has been as a son to him. So, like, really, his... Yeah. And they're really brother and sister. And yeah. he thinks his daughter's sadness no more than a cousin should feel for a cousin's absence. Okay, so even the author is acknowledging that it's icky. Yeah, it which is. Which means there's real trouble going on here. Yes, yes, yes. Oh. In the meantime... The weeks and months pass. The lover writes, often at first, then seldom, at last, not at all. Been there, done that. Oh, that's that's sad. Well, before social media and you just ghosted somebody on media, you just stopped writing letters. And if they were clever, they didn't write a whole lot until they heard back from you, so... um, it was a snail mail sort of ghosting. Yeah, I suppose you could slowly sort of drop out a little easier. Yeah, it tended to happen when people did things like at 19 go off to college instead of Italy. Sure. And and your your uh betrothed or uh, whatever arrangement you had before leaving town uh got fewer and fewer letters and phone calls and yeah, well, that's the thing. Long distance has a tendency to not work great. Yeah, even today, yeah. even today, it doesn't it's work great. It's hard work. It's um, hard work. And we got we got Zoom and Facebook and and texting and all kinds of 
sort of overwhelming ways to stay in touch 24-7. Um, yeah. What is it? Uh, it's a line from uh, How I Met Your Mother. Long distance doesn't work. Long distance is a lie high school seniors tell each other to get laid before they go off to college. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. And not just high school seniors. Yeah. How many excuses she invents for him. How many times she goes to the distant little post office to which he is to address his letters. How many times she hopes only to be disappointed. How many times she despairs only to hope again. But real despair comes at last and will not be put off anymore. The rich suitor appears on the scene, and her father is determined. She is to marry at once. The wedding day is fixed, the 15th of June. The date seems to burn into her brain. The date, written in fire, dances forever before her eyes. The date shrieked by the furies sounds continually in her ears kind of romeo juliet yeah yeah paris yes paris gets did dirty in that play i know he's doing like he just he shows up and he's like hey here's this pretty girl and like she seems nice and she seems to like me. And dad said, yeah, let's do it. So I'm going to get married. He's playing by the rules and he ends up dead. And then, yeah, he like, then she dies and he's sad and he goes to the grave and this lunatic busts in and stabs him. Yeah, and it's his fiance. It's his fiance. Yeah, there's no justice. Paris gets did dirty. But that's another story. But that's another story to be told another time, but probably not on this podcast. Meanwhile, Gertrude. Because it's wicked long. But there is time yet. It is the middle of May, so not a lot of time. (laughs) But there is time yet. It is the middle of May. There is time for a letter to reach him at Florence. There is time for him to come to Brunswick to take her away and marry her in spite of her father, in spite of the whole world. But the days and weeks fly by and he does not write. He does not come. This is indeed despair, which usurps her heart and will not be put away. It is the 14th of June. For the last time, she goes to the little post office. For the last time, she asks the old question, and they give her, for the last time, the dreary answer, no, no letter. For the last time, for tomorrow is the day appointed for the bridal. Her father will hear no entreaties. Her rich suitor will not listen to her prayers. They will not be put off a day, an hour. Tonight alone... So her rich suitor knows that she definitely does not want to marry him. Or at the very least knows that she wants to put it off. Okay. She's, she's asking for more time. She's not saying call it off. She's saying give me more time, give me more time, give me more. It sounds like. Yeah. 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 Which, like, I mean, I'm thinking if it's the night before the wedding and my bride-to-be comes to me and is like, hey, maybe not tomorrow. Uh, That's maybe a sign. I, I'm thinking she's been pleading her case longer than that. Yeah. But, but this is also very much Romeo and Juliet and... and the scene where she's 
please, Dad, no. Yeah. yeah. Her father will hear no entreaties. Her rich suitor will not listen to her prayers. That was me repeating that line. It was not written twice. They will not be put off a day, an hour. Tonight alone is hers. This night, which she may employ as she will. She takes another path than that which leads home. She hurries through some by streets of the city, out onto a lonely bridge where he and she had stood so often in the sunset, watching the rose-colored light glow, fade, and die upon the river. Dun-dun-dun. Yeah. Which is how I read the three little stars that cut across the page at that point. Dun-dun-dun. He returns from Florence. He had received her letter, that letter blotted with tears, entreating, despairing. He had received it, but he loved her no longer. A young Florentine who has sat to him for a... who has sat to him for a model. I know what it means. It's just a weird way to say the sentence. It is awkward. A young Florentine who has sat to him for a model had bewitched his fancy... That fancy which with him stood in place of a heart, and Gertrude had been half forgotten. I'm picturing a life drawing sort of thing. She's nude. Yeah. And her nudeness has bewitched him. He's probably no longer 19, but he's still... But he's still 20. 20. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Naked girl walks in the room. Well, I never got to see her naked. I guess I've got a crush on you now. Yeah. There you go. So anyway, um, Naked Hottie came in and and snaked her man. Um, <laughs> uh, if she had a rich suitor, good. Let her marry him. Better for her, better far for himself. He had no wish to fetter himself with a wife. Had he not his art Always his eternal bride, his unchanging mistress. God, I hate this guy. Yeah, what a douche. (laughs) Thus, he thought it wiser to delay his journey to Brunswick so that he should arrive when the wedding was over, arrive in time to salute the bride. So he's a douche and a coward. Yeah. I raised you better than that. I'm glad. (laughs) Your dad and I raised you better than that. A douche and a coward is the um, much less popular sequel to A Gentleman and a Soldier. (laughs) Indeed. Or An Officer and a Gentleman. That's what I was going for. (laughs) Thank you for telling my joke better than I did. (sighs) A Douche and a Coward is the much less popular sequel to An Officer and a Gentleman. Indeed. (laughs) Also starring Richard Gere. submit it to Paramount or something and see what they think. Um, <laughs> as fiction or? As a sequel to? Co- rom- romantic comedy as? A, I'm not sure. Oh, as a sequel. As a sequel to An Officer <laughs> and a Gentleman. I'm gonna, it turns I'm gonna out submit, he's actually a douche and a coward. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to submit <laughs> A Coward and Douche starring Richard Gere, a sequel to An Officer and a Gentleman. That's Richard Gere in that movie, right? If if it's not, I'm cutting all of this. (laughs) And the vows. The 
mystical fancies, the belief in his return, even after death, to the embrace of his beloved. Oh, gone out of his life, melted away forever, those foolish dreams of his boyhood. So, on the 15th of June, he enters Brunswick by that very bridge on which she stood, the stars looking down on her the night before. He strolls across the bridge and down by the water's edge, a great rough dog at his heels, and the smoke from his short pipe curling in blue wreaths. I'm and pretty sure that's not how it's pronounced. I, I think that was perfect pronunciation. I defy you <laughs> to pronounce it better. Meersham. Meersham? Mm-hmm. Some sort of pipe. Yeah. What's Meersham? I think it is either engraved or carved um, whalebone. Oh. It's a Moby Dick pipe. Yeah. Cool. You want me to look it up or are we just going to go with that? I'm, I'm going to go with Dick Pipe. That works. He strolls across the bridge and down by the water's edge, a great rough dog at his heels, and the smoke from his short dick pipe curling in blue wreaths fantastically in the pure morning air. He has his sketchbook under his arm, and attracted now and then by some object that catches his artist's eye, stops to draw. A few weeds and pebbles on the river's brink, a crag on the opposite shore, a group of pollard willows in the distance. When he has done, he admires his drawing, shuts his sketchbook, empties the ashes from his pipe, refills from his tobacco pouch, sings the refrain of a gay drinking song, calls to his dog, smokes again, and walks. Man, this dude is taking his time. You know, in honor of Heather, yeah. we really do need to come up with a more profane name for this guy than a douchebag and a coward on account of he has shown up on the day of her wedding. Now, I suspect we're going to find out there ain't going to be no wedding. And- I'm guessing she's dead. Yeah. I'm half expecting that one of the times he stops to draw, he's sketching, oh, this pretty thing by the, is that a hand? Oh, dear God. Yeah. I, I think that's coming. <clears throat> but in the meantime, we need a more profane name. And as your mom, it can't come out of my mouth. Well, I can tell you what Heather would come up with. I think you should. But I'm going to have to censor it because it's the one word we censor on the podcast. Oh. His name is going to be Dick Smoking. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So bleep, 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 yeah. bleep, bleep. So, so, we, so, um, so with that word and only that word, the tradition on the podcast, dear listener, is that um, Lina, who it's weird that she was able to meow over the top of that word. Um, even from she's in Iowa and I am here in North Carolina. But th- that's what you heard was Lina meowing so loudly that you couldn't hear me say the, the truly inappropriate word. But because it's dick pipe, that's the dick smoking. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Suddenly he opens his sketchbook again. This time that which attracts him is a group of figures. But what is it? It is not a funeral for there are no mourners. It is not a funeral but a corpse lying in a rude bier, covered with old sail, carried between two bearers. It is not a funeral, for the bearers are fishermen, fishermen in their everyday garb. 
About a hundred yards from him, they rest their burden on a bank. One stands at the head of the bier, the other throws himself down at the foot of it. And thus they form the perfect group. He walks back two or three paces, selects his point of sight, and begins to sketch a hurried outline. He has finished it before they move. He hears their voices, though he cannot hear their words, and... So the reason for this lengthy pause I have just taken is because the words wander and wonder always um, mix themselves up in my brain. And it is because of that goddamned hymn, I wonder as I wander. <laughs> it's a terrible hymn. It's a terrible hymn with just about the worst melody ever inflicted on a congregation of singers. And it's trying to be profound and spiritual, and instead it's got everybody going, this is... It's, it's kind of dirgy. It has seven too many verses, and it is the reason that I have trouble differentiating the words wonder and wander. But he wonders. <clears throat> he has finished it before they move. He hears their voices, though he cannot hear their words, and wonders what they can be talking of. Presently, he walks on and joins them. You have a corpse there, my friends, he says. Yes, a corpse. Washed ashore an hour ago. Drown? Yes, drown. A young girl. Very handsome. Suicides are always handsome, says the painter. Douche. Dick smoking. Yeah. <laughs> Suicides are he, always... <laughs> he deserves to be haunted with somebody who's going right? to grasp his throat. Absolutely. Like a snake. On the oof, on the list of people who deserve to be haunted. He's near the top. Yep. Suicides are always handsome, says the painter. And then he stands for a little while, idly smoking and meditating, looking at the sharp outline of the corpse and the stiff folds of the rough canvas covering. Life is such a golden holiday for him, young, ambitious, clever, that it seems as though sorrow and death could have no part in his destiny. Just totally disconnected, aren't you, yeah, dude? He... At last, he says that as this poor suicide is so handsome, he should like to make a sketch of her. He gives the fishermen some money, and they offer to remove the sailcloth that covers her features. Uh, no, he will do it himself. He lifts the rough, coarse, wet canvas from her face. What face? The face that shone on the dreams of his foolish boyhood. The face which once was the light of his uncle's home, his cousin Gertrude, his betrothed. Didn't see that coming. He should have seen that coming. Doesn't he know he lives in a sensation fiction ghost story? No, he's too busy being full of himself. And turned on by naked hotties. Yes. He sees as in one glance, while he draws one breath, the rigid features, the marble arms, the hands crossed on the cold bosom, and on the third finger of the left hand, the ring which had been his mother's, the gold serpent, the ring which, if he were to become blind, he could select from a thousand others by the touch alone. Is that a foreshadow? Eyes gone, or 
getting choked from behind and can't see and but he feels the ring on his throat or yeah. um or like she comes to hold his hand in the dark oh yeah 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 but he is a genius and oh, a metaphysician really? <laughs> grief true grief is not for such as he oh his first thought is flight Flight anywhere out of that accursed city. Grief is not for him. He's above it's grief. Fear. <laughs> I'm too cool to be sad. I'm terrified. <sighs> you can run, but you can't hide. Anywhere far from the brink of that hideous river, anywhere away from remorse, anywhere to forget. So he doesn't feel grief, but he feels guilt and fear. Because he's not only a douchebag, he's a coward. And in fairness, he did think himself a genius, and I think he's probably right to feel more fear and guilt than sadness at this moment. He is miles on the road that leads away from Brunswick before he knows that he has walked a step. It is only when his dog lies down panting at his feet that he feels how exhausted he is himself and sits down upon a bank to rest. How the landscape spins round and round before his dazzled eyes, while his morning sketches of the two fishermen and the canvas-covered beer glares redly at him out of the twilight. This guy is such a douche that he doesn't feel sad for the girl he has caused to die. He freaks out. He runs away, and he's miles down the road before he thinks of his dog. I was going to say, he still hasn't given his dog water. What a dick. At last, after sitting a long time by the roadside, idly playing with his dog, idly smoking, idly lounging, looking as any idle, light-hearted, traveling student might look, yet all the while acting over the morning scene in his burning brain a hundred times a minute. At last, he grows a little more composed and tries presently to think of himself as he is, apart from his cousin's suicide. Apart from that... He was no worse off than he was yesterday. His genius is not gone. The money he had earned at Florence still lined his pocketbook. He was his own master, free to go whither he would. And while he sits on the roadside, trying to separate himself from the scene of that morning, trying to put away the image of the corpse covered with the damp canvas sail, trying to think of what he should do next, where he should go, to be farthest away from Brunswick and remorse, the old diligence coming rumbling and jingling along. He remembers it. It goes from Brunswick to Aix-en-Chapelle. I would like to point out that he also hasn't given a thought to the man who thinks of him as a son and raised him. Whose daughter just killed herself last night. Yeah. Wow. Now I'm questioning her taste in men, too. I mean, seriously. Yeah. I know she's young, but what a douche. Come on, honey. You can do better. He whistles to the dog, shouts to the postillion to stop, and springs into the coupé. 
During the whole evening, through the long night, though he does not once close his eyes, he never speaks a word. But when morning dawns and the other passengers awake and begin to talk to each other, he joins in the conversation. He tells them that he is an artist, that he is going to Cologne and to Antwerp to copy Rubens's. <coughs> Rubens's? Sure. I guess that would be the, the plural of Rubens. I would just think Rubens. Say it three times fast. Rubens's, Rubens's, Rubens's. Oh, that, that Ruben clam song. Oh, poor old Ruben clams, oh. I kind of want a Reuben now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to copy Rubens's and the great picture by Quentin Matsis in the museum. I am not familiar with that. I'll be looking it up later. Quentin Matsis? His great picture. His great picture? Sure. Are, are you familiar with the name Quentin Matsis? No, oh. I'm not. Well, then I'm going to hope that I am pronouncing Quentin Matsis correctly. And if I'm not, someone will email us to tell me I'm wrong. There you go. Ordinarily, that would be you, but you're sitting right here, so. He remembered afterwards that he talked and laughed boisterously, and that when he was talking and laughing loudest, a passenger, older and graver than the rest, opened the window near him and told him to put his head out. He remembered the fresh air blowing in his face, the singing of the birds in his ears, and the flat fields and roadside reeling before his eyes. He remembered this, and then falling in a lifeless heap on the floor of the diligence. It is a fever that keeps him for six long weeks on a bed at a hotel at Aix-la-Chapelle. He gets well and, accompanied by his dog, starts on foot for Cologne. By this time, he is his former self once more. Again, the blue smoke from his short-stemmed dick pipe curls upwards in the morning air. Again, he sings some old university drinking song, again stops here and there, meditating and sketching. He is happy and has forgotten his cousin, and so on to Cologne. It is by the great cathedral he is standing with his dog at his side. It is night. The bells have just chimed the hour, and the clocks are striking eleven. The moonlight shines full upon the magnificent pile over which the artist's eye wanders, absorbed in the beauty of form. He is not thinking of his drowned cousin, for he has forgotten her and is happy. Suddenly, Someone, something from behind him, puts two cold arms round his neck and clasps its hands on his breast. <laughs> and yet, there is no one behind him. For on the flags, bathed in the broad moonlight, there are only two shadows, his own and his dog's. He turns quickly round. There is no one. Nothing to be seen in the broad square but himself and his dog, and though he feels, he cannot see the cold arms clasped round his neck. It is not ghostly, this embrace, for it is palpable to the touch. It cannot be real, for it is invisible. He tries to throw off the cold caress. He clasps the hands in his own to tear them asunder and to cast them from his neck. He can feel the long, delicate fingers cold and wet beneath his touch. 
and on the third finger of the left hand he can feel the ring which was his mother's, the golden serpent, the ring which he has always said he would know among a thousand by the touch alone. He knows it now. I bet he's thinking of his cousin now. Yup. The dead cousin's cold arms are around his neck. His dead cousin's wet hands are clasped upon his breast. He asks himself if he is mad. Up, Leo, he shouts. Up, up, boy. And the Newfoundland, oh, he's got a Newfie. <laughs> and, and we know the Newfie's name, and we know her name, and we know the uncle's name, but do we know his name? Yeah, it's Dick Smoking. <laughs> And the Newfoundland leaps to his shoulders. The dog's paws are on the dead hands. And the animal utters a terrific howl and springs away from his master. Good dog. Yeah. Smart dog. The student stands in the moonlight, the dead arms around his neck, and the dog at a little distance moaning piteously. Mm, Presently... The watchman, alarmed by the howling of the dog, comes into the square to see what is wrong. In a breath, the cold arms are gone. He takes the watchman home to the hotel with him and gives him money. In his gratitude, he could have given the man half his little fortune. Will it ever come to him again, this embrace of the dead? Ooh, every night. He tries never to be alone. He makes a hundred acquaintances and shares the chamber of another student. He starts up if he is left by himself in a public room of an inn where he is staying and runs into the street. People notice his strange actions and begin to think that he is mad. <laughs> Fair. But in spite of all, he is alone once more. For one night, the public room being empty for a moment, when on some idle pretense he strolls into the street... The street is empty too, and for the second time he feels the cold arms round his neck, and for the second time, when he calls his dog, the animal shrinks away from him with a piteous howl. After this, he leaves Cologne. Still traveling on foot, of necessity now, for his money is getting low. He joins traveling hawkers, he walks side by side with laborers, he talks to every foot passenger he falls in with, and tries from morning till night to get company on the road. At night, he sleeps by the fire in the kitchen of the inn at which he stops. But do what he will, he is often alone, and now a common thing for him to feel the cold arms around his neck. Many months have passed since his cousin's death, autumn, winter, early spring. His money is nearly gone. His health is utterly broken. He is the shadow of his former self, and he is getting near to Paris. He will reach that city at the time of the carnival. To this he looks forward. In Paris, in carnival time, he need never, surely, be alone, never feel that deadly caress. He may even recover his lost gaiety, his lost health, once more resume his profession, once more earn fame and money by his art. How hard he tries to get over the distance that divides him from Paris while day by day he grows weaker, his steps slower and more heavy. But there is an end at last. The long, dreary roads are past. This is Paris, which he enters for the first time. Paris, of which he has dreamed so much. Paris, whose million voices 
are to exorcise his phantom. To him, tonight Paris seems one vast chaos of lights, music, and confusion, lights which dance before his eyes and will not be still, music that rings in his ears and deafens him, confusion which makes his head whirl round and round. But in spite of all, he finds the opera house where there is a masked ball. He has enough money left to buy a ticket of admission and to hire a domino to throw over his shabby dress. A domino? Some sort of tuxedo jacket or something? Yeah, or a cape. Definition of a domino, as in clothing. A long, loose, hooded cloak, usually worn with a half-mask as a masquerade costume. Oh, good lord. Okay, so... Here's what we got going on. This um, art student is being haunted by his dead cousin. He's looking all kinds of grizzled and gnarly. His clothes are falling apart. And so he rents a cloak and goes to a ball dressed as the Phantom of the Opera. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) What could possibly go wrong at this ball? It seems only a moment after his entering the gates of Paris that he is in the very midst of all the wild gaiety of the Opera House Ball. No more darkness, no more loneliness, but a mad crowd shouting and dancing and a lovely de hanging on his arm. De, uh, de Bordeaux? I'm, I'm gonna, I would guess a lady of either a lady of some culture or a lady of ill repute. Female equivalent of a debadour. That's not helpful. Oh, it's somebody in costume as um, a dock worker, I think. So it's a woman who has come in costume and she's dressed like a, a dock worker. Oh, all right. Because... It is carnival and everybody's in costume. Sure. That's going to be the hit Halloween costume for 2022. Slutty dock worker. There you go. (laughs) The boisterous gaiety he feels surely is his old lightheartedness come back. He hears the people round him talking of the outrageous conduct of some drunken student. And it is to him they point when they say this. To him who has not moistened his lips since yesterday at noon, for even now he will not drink. Though his lips are parched and his throat burning, he cannot drink. His voice is thick and hoarse and his utterance indistinct. But still this must be his old light-heartedness come back that makes him so wildly gay. So he can't even drink water? Seems to be. I am confused. Well, she drowned. The little Debardeus is wearied out. Her arm rests on his shoulder heavier than lead. The other dancers, one by one, drop off. The lights in the chandeliers, one by one, die out. The decorations look pale and shadowy in the dim light, which is neither night nor day. A faint glimmer from the dying lamps, a pale streak of cold gray light from the newborn day creeping in through half-opened shutters. And by this light, the bright-eyed Debardius fades sadly. He looks in her face, 
how the brightness of her eyes dies out. Again, he looks her in the face. How white that face has grown. Again, and now it is the shadow of a face alone that looks in his. Again, and they are gone. The bright eyes, the face, the shadow of the face. He is alone, alone in that vast saloon. Alone, and in the terrible silence, he hears the echoes of his own footsteps in that dismal dance which has no music. No music, but the beating of his breast. The cold arms are round his neck. They whirl him round. They will not be flung off or cast away. He can no more escape from their icy grasp than he can escape from death. He looks behind him. There is nothing but himself in the great empty soleil. But he can feel cold, death-like, but oh, how palpable the long, slender fingers and the ring which was his mother's. He tries to shout, but he has no power in his burning throat. The silence of the place is only broken by the echoes of his footsteps in the dance from which he cannot extricate himself. Who says he has no partner? The cold hands are clasped on his breast, and now he does not shun their caress. No, one more polka, if he drops down dead. The lights are all out, and half an hour after, the gendarmes come in with a lantern to see that the house is empty. They are followed by a great dog that they have found seated howling on the steps of the theater. Leo. Near the principal entrance, they stumble over the body of a student who has died from want of food, exhaustion, and the breaking of a blood vessel. Oh, yay! The end. It occurs to me, you know, in the beginning when um, they're talking, she, she indicates that, you know when you die you'll go to heaven unless it's suicide so i'm kind of thinking this is her vengeance she commits this, suicide this was her plan all along yeah she commits suicide <laughs> in order to to get him to get even because she might be a foolish young girl but she knew so in the end it wasn't i'm so sad he left me i'm going to throw myself off this bridge it's that dick smoking Yes. I'm going to throw myself off this bridge and I'm going to come back and haunt his ass. Yeah, yeah. there you go. <laughs> That's my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I like it. And given the author, this is an empowered woman who. Yeah. 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 No, I, I. Yeah. No, I like that. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> and once again, I'm kind of hoping Heather would approve of my interpretation. Oh, I of think the so. Motivation. I think so. Yeah. 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 Because we love you, Heather. We miss you on this podcast. And we're looking forward to you coming back. We had a huge number spike the week she came back. Ah, understandable. I think, I think she is missed. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so uh, that was a cool story. I like I, that. I did. I, I like that too. Often ghost stories, especially ghost stories written early in careers of authors, I've noticed they have like... The idea is cool, but the execution isn't great, or the um, the language is beautiful and fascinating and even kind of creepy, but the, the story itself is a little, like, 
I mean, yeah, that's every ghost story I've ever heard. I feel like this one did a nice job of like, it was an original like way to get to the haunting. I've, I've, I've never, I've never read a story where, where like that was the plot. The language was great. The, the, the level of suspense was really nice. Like it, it kept a good amount of tension. Like I, it, it sort of ticked off all the boxes. Indeed. And I, I like that, um, our douchebag, um, <laughs> as artists will do that whole sketch pad sort of thing where they're always sketching, always sketching, always sketching is true oh, of yeah. many, many artists, but they, can still be ethical people who have basic compassion and sure. yeah. yeah 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 and aren't cowards so so way to go Mary Braddon Mary yeah. Elizabeth M E Braddon yes indeed cool um well so we liked that one what did you think listener did you have a good time um I hope so uh I hope you weren't listening to that at bedtime because it was honestly a little spooky. Mm-hmm. Um, although you have nothing to fear from this particular ghost, unless you're a douche and a coward. I think she got her vengeance, yeah. and 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 maybe heaven understands. Yeah, yeah. I sympathize with her the same way I sympathize with um, was it the 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 water ghost of Harrowby Hall? Yes, I remember that one. Yeah, that that's that's another one where I kind of felt like ooh. Uh, I'm kind of on the ghost side here. I am curious about, because he is such a coward and such a douchebag, um, I was, I, I was oddly prepared for him to take the ring off of her corpse. Yeah. And he didn't. He didn't. So that is his re- redeeming quality. I think it's because he ran like a chicken shit too fast. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I don't think he was leaving the ring with her. I think he was like, nope, I'm out. So he has no, <laughs> no redeeming qualities. Well, this has been fun. Thank you for having me on the show. Of course. Thank you very much for, for joining me. This was, this was a great time. Um, uh, so yeah, listeners, if you like that one, let us know, shoot us a message. Um, give us, give us your thoughts. Uh, send some love to my mom. Uh, and uh you can you can send those messages to any of our social media accounts or to uh 5050 artsproduction at gmail.com if you send that email just so that we know you got this deep into the episode you can include this week's secret passcode and what is this week's secret passcode this week's secret passcode which you can include either in the body of the email or in the subject line or just somewhere so we know you got it is dick pipe dick pipe <laughs> and how does one spell dick pipe uh d-i-c-k hyphen p-i-p-e so no y no where would the y be well if you wanted to be creative you could go d-y-c-k Oh, yeah. But that actually wouldn't be pronounced. Dick. That'd be dyke pipe. <laughs> and that's, that's a different thing. Yeah. That only works if, if, if our resident douche would be more offended by that. Yeah. Or if our resident douche is a little boy from Amsterdam. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, but we know he's from Germany. But he's from Germany. Um, so please do send that email. And um, yeah. Uh, oh, and um, uh, said said thank you to uh, thank you and congratulations to Heather and you know thank you and thank you listener for getting us to ten thousand listens. But also thank you to all of the people who have come on and guest hosted. Um, Emily, obviously, my brother Craig, he's been on a couple of times and is going to be on again. Um, Torin and Kim both came on and, and guest hosted episodes. We've had a lot of people who have been great at helping us, um, helping us get where we are. Everyone who's come on and been uh, guest competitors on True Crimes and a Lie, once Heather gets back, we're hoping to get that started up again. Um, and I, I think it's also time to do more promos. Yeah. Yeah, we need to get back on doing more promos. That's another thing. So one of the many things we lost when Heather left is that she was good at talking to people and I'm not. So we'll hopefully get some promos back so we can we can uh, start saying hi to other podcasts. Um, any parting words? This has been Campfire Classics. Where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. <laughs> Tell five friends and drink more wine.